Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Over the past year, there's been a huge demand for diabetes drugs that also promote weight loss. And now, a promising clinical trial of an experimental Alzheimer's drug could be the next frontier. Today, we ask how much of an impact could these developments have on the overall healthcare sector? And what are some of the regional stories at play? Portfolio manager Alex Gold joins us today from London. Alex manages Fidelity Global Healthcare Fund for Canadian investors. And today, we'll look at the latest trends and opportunities in the global healthcare sector, including unpacking some of the key themes on his radar for the second half of 2023. Alex also answers how politics and lobbying may influence healthcare and how much of a role tech plays into global healthcare trends, among other topics today with host Pamela Ritchie. This podcast was recorded on May 9th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's get into the timing, actually, because investors have lots of reasons to be looking at equities in different ways. The discussion of healthcare has always been a defensive play to an extent. Tell us about the overall timing right now for investors who might want to look at healthcare. You're absolutely correct. Healthcare is traditionally seen as a defensive sector in the market, and that's due to the fact that a lot of the purchases that happen within healthcare are non-discretionary, things like Drugs, whether it's the diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or cancer, are non-discretionary. People still have to take them regardless of, of the economy. And then other areas of the healthcare market, whether it's having a hip or knee replacement or even you know, buying a new hearing aid or manufacturing of drugs or running clinical trials or doing R&D, all of those areas are fairly recession-proof, certainly compared to sort of more cyclical areas of the broader market. And I think this morning, some of the data I saw at a macro level highlighted the the tightening in lending standards that some of the major U.S. banks are sort of um, putting through as we've gone through this regional banking crisis in the U.S. And, you know, that, you know, only heightens the importance of, of looking for, you know, defensive growth, which I think healthcare gives you. And when we, I think sort of pre-COVID, maybe even during COVID, which of course was its own enormous health emergency and, and you know, study of, of really the healthcare sector. We used to talk pre-COVID a lot about the sort of secular story, ultimately. The, it has a lot to do with populations and an aging population and how that works, the demographic story. Do we have now a case of almost a, a still a reopening, still trying to do those hip procedures, getting those things back? online, along with actually the secular themes kind of kicking in. I mean, the boomers are reaching age 65. Does this mean some of those healthcare spend stories come to the forefront? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a really important secular secular theme, you know, pre-COVID or post-COVID in a recession or a structurally growing economy, we do have an aging population. So many things are uncertain. If you look at the 
proportion of the global population that's over the age of 65, you can reasonably accurately predict that out, you know, for the future decades out to 2050. And so, the, you know, the data, you know, from sort of um, UN population databases, which is pretty straightforward to run, you know, highlights that we're going to go from about 750 million people are currently over the age of 65. And by 2050, we'll have about 1.5 billion people will be over the age of 65. And obviously, there is a relationship between the aging of the population and the demand and the need for healthcare products. So that is, as you've correctly highlighted, a structural long-term mega trend, you know, for healthcare demand, which is that was there before COVID, and that's still very much in place as things stand. These drug developments that we've been hearing about, I mean, they've been all over TikTok, first of all. So there's sort of a, a retail story to the, the diabetes slash weight loss uh, drug that, that has been out there. But just chart the course for us a little bit. This is a diabetes drug that has now just got wider use, kind of exponential uses. Is that right? So Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly are two of the major players in, in diabetes that dominate that market. And over the last couple of decades or even longer, they've been iterating and ever improving their their sort of blood glucose control um, for diabetes. And as they produce more and more studies, they've actually started to show that one of the, the major benefits from, you know, better control of these drugs from diabetes perspective is, is weight loss. And so for a long period of time, there hasn't been any sort of meaningful weight loss drug on the market. That, that has been successful and what these drugs are, are able to show and they've gone through the trials already is that through uh, you know taking the, the drug you have a 15 to 20 percent weight loss through appetite suppression effectively and that then has potentially lots of associated benefits on you know things like heart failure and cardiovascular adverse events you know which are associated with obesity so it really is quite game changing. And that's why you're starting to see it being picked up on social media, because previously some of these drugs may have had less than 10 percent impact on on weight loss. But these, are, as I said, are 15 to 20 percent. And that is you know, really pretty significant. And when you think of healthcare systems, government healthcare systems trying to trying to handle various different types of issues that, that are you know within the population, you mentioned hypertension or heart failure, that that must come into the picture of how they're going to spend. So, I mean, what we've actually seen is that there's currently a shortage because the demand has been so strong of the, the Novo Nordisk drug, uh, Wegovy, in the US. And the Lilly drug is set to be launched later this year. And there's, you know, they're ramping up and spending a lot of money on capacity to try and ensure that they can meet the the unprecedented demand, really. And, yeah, it's 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 really interesting because, you know, the numbers you're starting to see is is there's about 30 million people in the US who are going to have potentially commercial access to an obesity drug. And that even then is still a very small percentage of the overall obese population in the US. And so it's, it, it's really quite easy to start to see numbers of like you know, $50 billion as a drug class by 2030. For, for obesity, which, you know, will be one of the biggest drug classes ever. And even at that stage, you know, there's still a relatively underpenetrated market. And that is because there are lots of associated potential savings 
through the healthcare system by reducing obesity. But we do still have, to be fair, some clinical trials to be read out over the coming years to try and really highlight what those savings and benefits are of those comorbidities. But that's, you know, a big area of focus for the drug companies at the moment. Fascinating. You just mentioned that term comorbidity, which is which is a, a very sad term, but it's the type of medical term that we've all been exposed to after mm. the pandemic. So we all feel like we're experts, of course, at, at, at all of this, this different type of language. Tell us a little bit on the Alzheimer's front, because for a long time, there was a particular track of research that was trying to figure out and sort of crack the code on what it was that Alzheimer's even was in order to treat it. What, what's changed? There's been a lot of uncertainty and debate for the last oh, 20, 30 years on the causes of Alzheimer's. And then ultimately, how do you, you know, slow the progression of cognitive you know, decline? And so, you know, this is kind of the amyloid hypothesis and thesis. And, and it's you know, been up for debate. But last year we had Biogen, who had a successful trial in this area, um, which showed a the slowing of the cognitive cognitive decline, and then Lily just last week also had had a trial readout, and there it's difficult because there are different endpoints in terms of trying to measure whether you know you know what is cognitive decline. It's kind of it's not the straightforward definition, so they're not exactly apples for apples when you compare the Biogen trial versus the Lily trial, you know. But the headlines are nonetheless encouraging. For example, the, the Lily trial highlighted you know, there was a 35% decline in cognitive decline, a 35% slowdown in cognitive decline when you use their drug versus placebo. And nearly half of the respondents um, on the drug had no clinical progression. You know, they didn't have any decline at one year. So, you know, it's just in a huge unmet need and market, these were the kind of second key area of results which showed you know, that maybe we can start to give drugs to slow the decline and help patients in, in really an area where there's, there's very little, you know, at this point in time. From the investment standpoint, these, so these stories are out there. As I say, some of them you're reading about in very much retail media. How are the stock prices ultimately sort of across some of these classes? You don't have to go into specifics, but, you know, are, are these types of developments priced in? Well, that's a good question because we do still have to go through, you know, they need to be approved. We need that we've had, you know, good trial results, but they need to be approved, reimbursed. We then need to sort of, you know, have increased diagnosis and identification of patients. They need to work out if you're giving, you know, how you give the drugs to the patients. Ideally, the companies are working on subcutaneous of delivery as well, which makes it, you know, easier. So we're still at the okay. early stage. Does that mean you have to have an injection? Yes, exactly. But that's easier than doing, you know, having to go into the hospital and have it through like an IV drip. It's much, much more convenient having it subcutaneously. And so they're all kind of working on this path to try and to try and do that. But, um, you know, already we're seeing that this could be sort of, you know, five, five billion, ten billion dollars of drug revenues for each of Lilly or Biogen if they each take 50 percent market share. And obviously those market shares will be, you know, will be determined by further data on safety and exact efficacy and, you know, rates of diagnosis and, you know, trying to identify the patients. But, you know, this could, you know, very comfortably be five, ten billion dollar drug for each of those companies. And, you know, to some extent that's, you know, priced into the drugs, but equally um, it priced into stocks, but equally, you know, as they 
develop more and more drugs over the coming years, which hopefully are better and more convenient for patients as well, then, you know, the market opportunity is so significant, you know, that could be conservative. But as always, you have to kind of wait for the data to, to come out to support that. So, so interesting on the, on the drug development side of things. And these things are in pipelines for a long, long, long time and, and sometimes don't work. So it's, it's fascinating to get the update and, and hear about that. Within the healthcare sector, there are lots of subsectors. Tell us a bit more about either the devices, sort of the side of the medical devices, including things like people getting new hips, those types of surgeries coming back online much more now than they were a couple of years ago. As you said, so the medical devices has been an area which has been severely impacted due to COVID. A lot of hospitals were shut. People couldn't have their elective procedures, as they're often referred to. And after a couple of years of disruption, really, and, you know, from COVID and then staff shortages as well at the hospitals. And, you know, those labour shortages are so prevalent in lots of areas of the economy. But, you know, we're starting this year to see a really quite you know, quick acceleration of patients going back to hospitals, hospitals being able to manage the workflow and, you know, a strong acceleration in growth for a lot of the medical device companies, whether it's across areas such as heart valves or hip and knees or um, other areas of medical devices. Uh, That sector, which has been severely impacted, is, is showing very strong growth. We've just been through Q1 results. A lot of the companies have reported how they've they've done over the quarter and, and some of the trends they've seen into April and what they expect for the rest of 2023. And particularly in an uncertain macro environment, to have you know a subsector of of healthcare and the economy which is actually accelerating and having improving fundamentals, I think is is particularly attractive. And so so the outlook you know, certainly for medical devices looks looks very strong at this point. Presumably with the the devices themselves, that impacts positively um, the hospitals doing the procedures? Yes, yep. So there's not many listed hospitals. A lot of them are sort of non-profit or in, you know, in in the UK, for example, obviously centrally, they're managed by the government, you know, single payer healthcare systems. But in general, higher kind of procedures and in particular, the labour shortage easing which we are starting to see from, you know, some of the listed US pairs like HCA, you know, does mean that, you know, from a profitability perspective, that should be positive. Do you see any trends towards people taking control of their health through improved lifestyle, diet? Would you see that having a significant impact on the corporate side of companies in the healthcare sphere? Yeah, yeah. People kind of taking care of some of their own bits and pieces. Yeah, I mean, that would certainly be positive if people sort of do more exercise and and try and proactively, you know, ensure that they don't, you know, progress in certain diseases. I mean, it's interesting, there are lots of studies and, you know, interesting charts which highlight that there's a, co- a positive correlation between sort of GDP per capita, the, the, the wealthier that nations get, and cancer incidence. So the, the, the wealthier the nations, the higher the incidence of cancer. And that's because lifestyles change, probably diagnosis is also higher. But, you know, certainly changing lifestyles over the last few hundred years have meant that we have higher cancer, higher heart and cardiovascular issues. And so any, you know, exercise or lifestyle habits that kind of try and, you know, address that are positive um, to, you know, and that certainly I think that's something in the US. We see a lot of the US health insurance companies trying to, you know, help their their members with those sort of things, because obviously, 
if you can prevent people getting ill and prevent them going to hospitals, you know, that saves the whole healthcare system a lot of money. Another question, um, how much of a role does technology play in the global healthcare trend? Can they be separated at this point? Great question. I mean, technology is really important. You know, innovate, you know, healthcare is one of the, the sectors in the market together with tech that spends the most money on R&D. So innovation is really important for the healthcare sector and, you know, for the tech sector as well. And so, you know, but it's important in different ways. You get sort of some really revolutionary, you know, inventions such as the ones we've talked about, and they would have used tech to kind of help, you know, do the trials and identify patients and, you know, sort of, um, you know, I guess, come up with the medicine in the first place. But then, you know, tech is also used within healthcare in sort of, in areas such as robotics or, you know, which is helpful from, for doing minimally invasive surgery, which, you know, saves doctors time and also gets people out of hospitals quicker. And for things like genomics, you know, all of those things are only possible because you've got, you know, tech and faster, you know, apparatus to, to do a lot of the, the research on. So it's kind of intertwined, but, you know, I guess the underlying message is that innovation is, is really at the core to what healthcare does, and that's that is driven by tech. It may be related. Uh, I'm not sure, but where have you seen over the course of the last few years the inflationary pressures the most? And and give us a bit of a sense of you know the, the temperature of how much you've seen those come back down again, if at all. A lot of companies within the healthcare sector do have pricing power, so they've been able to pass on the negative impact or price of that of pricing on their cost bases to the end markets and that's because a lot of the you know of what the products that they sell are not discretionary you still need to take them but the area that was most impacted due to inflation was medical devices and that's because that was one part of the market that did not have much pricing power and so we had you know at the gross margin level because of disrupted supply chains elevated cost pressures we did have some um, sort of pressure of about 200 basis points for a lot of medical device companies. And what we're seeing is that in 2023, those are easing. We're seeing that and we're you know, hopeful that over, over the course of 2023 and then 24 and 25, we have both an accelerating top line as patients have gone back to the hospitals to have the procedure, but also the cost pressures are easing. So we should have margin expansion. That's probably the area where there's been the most cost pressure from from an inflationary perspective. So interesting. You mentioned single payer systems, which is essentially the government picking up the tab. I mean, from all of our taxes, it's not them picking up the tab, but it is a single point of of purchase for or or, or paying system versus the U.S. Do you have to watch co- countries like the U.S.? Do you have to watch from the political sidelines just to kind of see where policy might shift in in that situation? Yes, I mean, healthcare is about 18% of GDP in the US, so it's always going to be an important from a political perspective. You know, however, you know, as we go into this, you know, US election cycle into 2024, you know, we have had Biden confirm that he's going to rerun, which is important because on the Democrat side of things, he is, you know, more centrist. And we saw that in the, the last election cycle when he effectively opposed Medicare for all, which was, you know, a single payer system in the US, which would have, you know, been a radical overhaul of the healthcare system. So the fact that Biden, a centrist, at least for healthcare, 
on the democratic side is running is is a positive and then it's it's widely not expected that if we had a republican victory next year that there would be a big overhaul either so so i think in general there will still be a lot of noise and rhetoric on things like drug pricing in particular but you know i would i would not expect a significant overhaul or shift towards a single payer system in the us when you you mentioned the earnings before where where you're seeing certain types of for instance like the outlook for for the medical devices, also probably notes on inflation. What else have you looked to on the earnings front? I mean, there's been much discussion that earnings kind of have to pull through. Um, this is so. What what would you note about various parts of the healthcare sector that that have released earnings? Is there anything to note in terms of trends? Yeah. So I mean, so one of the other key areas um, which has been interesting has been the life science and tools sector. So these are the companies that help run the clinical trials, manufacture the drugs. So doing bioprocessing, and they do that for biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And they also sell instrumentation to undertake R and D in the first place. That sector is, you know, very attractive over the longer term and has been very strong over the last decade as well. But you know, it is going through, you know, some potential transitory pressures at the moment and that's due to factors such as you know the covid the vaccines kind of demand is slowing you know most people have been vaccinated covid testing is slowing uh we're seeing signs of maybe some uh destocking impact which means that you know demand for their kind of um you know drugs to be manufactured is slowing a bit you know that is expected to be transitory for 2023 but then we've also seen some biotech funding has been caught up in the broader capital market, the volatility that we've seen, and, and that is also slowing. So, you know, what that means is that, you know, some of the, you know, the double digit or, you know, particularly strong growth that we've seen over the last few years is at the margin, you know, just, you know, still growing, but less, less fast. So that's, you know, something that's been a, a focus for that life science and tool sector as investors kind of digest what that means for 2023 and then, um, you know, when will we return to sort of the underlying, you know, growth outlook for those sectors. When you say life sciences, and I, it just always makes me think of the companies that do the very worthwhile research on, but they keep like lab rats and stuff. Well, but, you know, some some do that, yes. So, well, that's, there's one or two companies that do that, but it's... um. It's in general life sciences is the the companies. It's a broad term, but it encapsulates those companies that you know run the clinical trials, do the drug manufacturing, which is often outsourced by you know biotech and pharma companies, and and really you know develop high end instruments for you know for pharmaceutical research. Any deglobalization that you notice? Sometimes you wonder to what extent that it's all real. I mean, do do you notice that? Lots of components for the healthcare system, I'm sure, sector are are made all over the world. Yeah, so there's there's there is a lot of noise about that, about yeah, about the sort of onshoring of sort of you know manufacturing, you know, across the market, but also for healthcare. But you know, but in general, because you know a lot of the products within the healthcare sector are so important, you know, for end for patients, you know, most companies will be kind of dual sourced. They'll have, you know, already have a lot of different geographic footprints and won't be overly reliant on on one area, you know, because you just can't afford for, you know, your products to, you know, if you not get access to your products because of a geopolitical issue. So, so I think probably when there's, you know, future CapEx plans, 
you know, probably going to incrementally benefit, you know, the US or, you know, Europe. But it's not a sort of a, a seismic shift um, that we're seeing at this point. So just to, to kind of close out, just just take us back to ultimately this sector going through, whether there is or isn't a recession, to what degree it is or isn't shallow. How should this sector do? Just remind us. Yeah, so I think because of all the structural drivers of healthcare with the aging population, the need to save the healthcare system money through developing you know, innovative new drugs and products, that does mean that it's a very defensive sector. And we've seen that in periods of prior recessions, whether it's 2008-9, whether it's in March 2020, or other periods of, of slowdowns in, in this of 2015-16. You know, every time there is, you know, a recession or a slowdown in the economy, you know, you do see resilience from the healthcare sector. And that's, that's to be expected. But equally, during periods of strong economic growth, the sector has this structural tailwind in terms of demand as the population ages. So you have, I do think you have this good balance of defensive growth in, you know, in the poor times, but equally in the good times, there's um, there's still strong demand for, for healthcare products. Portfolio Manager Alex Gold joining us from London. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us. You're welcome. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.